Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. You are listening to 103.3 FM WXOJLP in Northampton. All right. So as always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Okay. So let us start tonight with an update on the Mars rover Opportunity. Now, as you may know, Opportunity, after a stellar 15-year run on Mars, uh, until it was silenced last year in a giant sandstorm that unfortunately covered its solar panels in enough dust that they uh, don't seem to have been able to continue to power the craft. Um, and so it has unfortunately gone silent. NASA, however, has not given up and is actually getting ready to send a new volley of commands to the rover to see if they can make contact. And so that is a very exciting thing. Hopefully it will work if it doesn't, you know, unfortunately it's, not meant to be then. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's been 15 years. If it turns out that this is the end of opportunity, I don't think there's going to be anyone who thinks that that is not a stellar amount of work that it has done. And that, um, you know, it would be great if it could keep going on for another 15 years or more. But Unfortunately, space is hard, as I um, like to remind people, uh, even everything about space, even if you're on another planet, it's still hard um, because they're, you're trying to interface with something that's very far away, um, even as close as, quote unquote, close as Mars, uh, our nearest uh, neighbor. So the engineers will actually address the possible issues, uh, and they so they think that it might be a problem with one of its radios or the internal clock. And though this is actually kind of unlikely, the team refuses to give up again and uh, until really all hope is lost. We have and will continue to use multiple techniques in our attempts to contact the rover, John Callis, uh, project manager for Opportunity at NASA's uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, said in a statement. These new command strategies are in addition to the sweep and beep commands we have been transmitting up to the rover since September. Now, the NASA team had hoped that strong winds would have cleared off the solar panels and allowed the rover to power up again. And so, unfortunately, they think that if the rover doesn't recover soon, it may be the end uh, because it is going to get very cold soon. Uh, the season for the winds is ending. And if it isn't uncovered and doesn't have time to power back up in order to protect some of its um, electronics, then unfortunately, it's probably not going to be uh, able to be recovered. Now, Spirit and Opportunity uh, were sort of twins, and they set down on the Red Planet back in 2004. Now, Spirit's mission actually came to an end way back in 2011, uh, 
after two years of trying to free the rover from soft soil. And so basically it just got bogged down in this soil and it just couldn't move. Uh, it didn't have enough wheels left uh, on the actual surface to get enough grip. And it just, it just, they couldn't move it anymore. Now, again, these are still amazing missions. Opportunities was Opportunity was originally scheduled to conduct a 90-day mission to look for signs of water. And it worked and continued to keep going and doing all sorts of great science until this past June when that sandstorm hit. 15 years on the surface of Mars is testament not only to a magnificent machine of exploration, but the dedicated and talented team behind it that has allowed us to expand our discovery space of the red planet, Callis said in that statement. However, this anniversary cannot help but be a little bittersweet, as at present we don't know the rover's status. We are doing everything in our power to communicate with opportunity, but as time goes on, the probability of a successful contact with the rover continues to diminish. Now, that is, again, sad. It would be great if we would be able to suddenly have a happy ending where it comes back, roaring back to life. But if it doesn't, the cool thing is, is that it's not the only rover or Mar or NASA mission on Mars. <laughs> there are actually two other NASA missions on Mars right now. Um, so while it would be great to get opportunity back, opportunity is not our only, well, opportunity <laughs> to do more science on the red planet right now, right at this moment. And so... Um, for instance, uh, the Curiosity rover is still going extremely strong. That one actually landed on the planet in 2012, just after Spirit, unfortunately, uh, had to be given up. And of course, the InSight lander is just getting started. It only arrived there at the end of the year and began to deploy things right at the beginning of this year. Now, Curiosity this week is actually moving into new territory around Mar Mount Sharp, which is a three-mile-high mountain in the center of Gale Crater. And scientists have actually recently published the results of a neat bit of science that they were able to do with Curiosity, despite the fact that it didn't have the exact right tool for it. And so Kevin Lewis, an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins, realized that you can use the acceler accelerometer in a phone to measure the force of the Earth's gravity, at least roughly and using a bunch of math. He realized that he could do the same thing on Mars using the accelerometers on Curiosity rather than the actual tool, uh, which would normally be used for this job, which would be a uh, gravimeter, which, of course measures gravity. <laughs> uh, again, one of those things that I'm always saying is that, you know, sometimes scientists are not terribly, um, you know, they're not terribly imaginative in their naming conventions, which I suppose is very good because it's nice to be able to just know what something is by its name. But despite the fact that it doesn't have a gravimeter, Curiosity does have a navigational system, which includes gyroscopes and an accelerometer for measuring changes in velocity, acceleration, and orientation. 
Now, of course, it's not as sensitive to use this method, but it was sensitive enough to potentially solve the answer to a question that the researchers are actually really interested in. They want to know if Mount Sharp has been created by erosion or through deposition. And so with the readings from the um, rover, they actually found that the average density of the rock was lower than they had expected, which implies that the rock was more porous than had been expected, and therefore the sediment and also that the sediment around there was not very deep because it hadn't yet been fully compacted. So all of this suggests that Mount Sharp was created by deposition of sediment blowing into the crater rather than erosion. Because if you have erosion, usually what's left is the hardest rock. Uh, that's what ends up staying is the rock that is too hard to be weathered away um, by erosion even though eventually uh, the act of erosion can pretty much wear down anything given enough time. But uh, when you see places like the, um, I think it's the Devil's Chimney somewhere out west, it's this big pillar that sticks up and, you know, that's an erosionary um, uh, feature. And so the all of the land that was around it eroded away and then it's just left there sitting standing kind of like a almost like a petrified uh ginormous uh tree trunk it's that kind of a thing sorry i watched a youtube video about that late the other day so it was on my mind um, anyway he's getting back to mars <laughs> um now of course this isn't a slam dunk because it is kind of uh as the um as the researcher said, um, as Kevin Lewis said, it, that it's kind of MacGyver-esque research. Uh, and he was very proud of that. And I think that's pretty cool myself. So, um, but, you know, it does actually potentially really further our knowledge in this area. And so uh, Kirsten Seibach a uh, Martian geologist and assistant professor at Rice University, who I don't believe was uh, involved in this research. Uh, you know, everybody always goes to people for quotes. Uh, and so her quote was, my first impression was that it's a clever engineering trick to use instruments on board the rover that weren't designed as science instruments to actually do science. This pushes us to get a better understanding of what low porosity rocks might behave like on Mars so that they can then kind of test whether or not these readings really match up with low porosity rocks um, or high por porosity rocks, which is what they think these might actually be. Um, and of course, we will be getting more data on these kinds of things because we have Insight, which has a... Um, uh, it has a seismometer uh, instrumentation that it's working on sort of probing the interior uh, rock formations of the planet. And in the future, we will have the Mars 2020 lander if everything goes as well as everything else has so far. Uh, and so hopefully that's going to go to plan. And so next year we'll have yet another uh lander on the surface doing more science. So we are really slowly building up an idea of exactly what the Martian landscape is like. 
Uh, and so even though I think we're still a long way off from sending humans, uh, though some people seem to think that it's right around the corner, uh, I really don't think that it's got real potential to send anyone for any length of time, uh, maybe sort of the same length as a moonwalk. Maybe we could do that in the next, you know, 10 or 15 years. Uh, but we are definitely getting a better picture of the red planets, geology, and history, which I think is very cool because it is our nearest neighbor. And it's really interesting because it has a lot of features about uh, the planet that kind of make it an analog in some ways to what the Earth could have been like had we not uh been in just that right amount of space and had just the right conditions and got that really awesome moon uh, in order to make everything continue to work with life. Um, so yeah. Okay. Let's take a moment now to have a quick update on the Parker Solar Probe, uh, which has completed its first lap around the sun. Uh, the first of 24 planned for the probe as it pushes ever closer to the surface of our uh, sun. And so the probe has already sent back 17 gigabits of science data from its first orbit and will continue and will complete the download by April. We've always said that we don't know what to expect until we look at the data, noted Nor Raufani a project scientist on the probe at Johns Hopkins University's Applied Physics Lab in Maryland, which is managing the project. The data we have received hints at many new things that we've not seen before and at potential new discoveries. Parker Solar Probe is delivering on the mission's promise of revealing the mysteries of our sun. Now, during its mission, the probe will help us re will help researchers understand the interior workings of the sun and how it accelerates materials at high speed. And sort of most importantly, because it's such a weird uh, issue and we don't understand it at all, hopefully it will help illuminate uh, why the outer layer of the sun's atmosphere or corona is so much hotter than the actual solar surface, which is, of course, what you would expect. You would expect that the solar surface, which is closer to the interior, would be hotter, um, but it's not. And that's really weird. And we still don't know why. <laughs> So not to be undone, uh, outdone, I should say, uh, New Horizons data has continued to come back, and there are new higher resolution shots of Ultima Thule. And so you can see those, and um, they actually show the smaller lobe has a deep depression in it. Uh, there's a white ring around the area where the two objects are joined, and a bunch of other like really clear features that we can see now, um, because of course, originally we only kind of had a fuzzy picture of what was going on. And <laughs> the OSIRIS-REx team has also released new highly detailed images of the asteroid Bennu. And boy, is that a weird little asteroid. It's just, it's, it's very fascinating. Um, and so I will try and make a little... Um, photo gallery on the on the Facebook page of different um, images that have been released recently from all of these um, craft. And so, yeah, 
uh, NASA is definitely going gangbusters still. And, um, you know, it's one of those few truly bright spots right now for pretty much anything associated with the U.S. government. Um, <clears throat> so speaking of the government and recent events, let's talk about something completely different. Let's talk about a wall, but not the wall here in America uh, that pretty much nobody wants. Let's talk about a wall in Denmark. <laughs> So Denmark has begun building a $12 million border wall to keep out German wild boar. <laughs> so the government is worried about the possible spread of African swine fever, or ASF, a disease that is fatal to pigs, but blessedly is currently benign to humans. Uh, unfortunately, pigs are a big vector when it comes to diseases, so... Uh, Anything that is fatal in pigs, it's very happy that it does not affect humans. Um, but the boars in nearby Belgium, uh, some boars have tested positive for ASF. And the reason that they're so concerned about Germany is that Germany has a basically a huge population of wild boar. And so Denmark isn't taking any chances with its domestic pig population, which is actually twice as big as its human population. So in Denmark, there are two pigs for every person. <laughs> um, and so it's a big deal. It's really, it is actually something that is potentially really a danger um, to their economy, to their population. Um, the country exports around $5 billion worth of pork products every year. And so that's a big deal. Uh, and this is something that they really need to be concerned about. Now, the wall will be around five feet high and crosses around 40 miles of the border between Denmark and Germany. Now, smaller animals such as fox and otters are supposed to be able to get through the fence, but it's supposed to deter larger boar uh, from crossing into Danish territory. Now, even this wall has its real detractors. Uh, environmentalists warn that it might endanger the migratory patterns of animals like wild wolf, which have just been spotted in the country for the first time in 200 years. And a German agricultural minister suggests that ASF spreads mainly through people, through animal transport, hunting trips, infected food, and thus won't be stopped by a low steel wall. Well, whether or not the wall itself works, hopefully Denmark will be able to keep out the deadly virus because it is, you know, potentially very devastating to their economy. And so, yeah, that is definitely something that has been a continuing issue uh, when you have these kinds of outbreaks. Um, you know, bird flu was a huge one where millions and millions and millions of birds, um, I'm not sure exactly what the uh, actual number was offhand, but a very large number of birds ended up having to be euthanized. And it really affected, especially in, in um, Asia, markets were very, very hard hit by um, the avian flu. And so unfortunately, this is one of those kind of uh, inherent pitfalls of humans and animals living in uh, close association is that 
viruses take this as basically a uh, free-for-all. And, um, you know, there's that idea that before agriculture, people were actually healthier. And there is actually some truth to that um, because there is a real connection between living in close quarters with both other humans and with animals that leads inevitably to um, an easier way for viruses to um, transmit themselves. Okay. But anyways, let's let's move on. Let's hope that Denmark's pigs are safe for now. A couple of weeks ago, I told you about the sad state of affairs that is Nobel Prize winner James Watson. But tonight, I want to talk about a different Nobel Prize winner, one who, it seems, hopefully has escaped the curse uh, and may yet have more to contribute to humanity. And that winner is actually Arthur Ashkin, who is the world's oldest winner at 96 years old, uh, but he is apparently still going strong. And, you know, this isn't a, a sort of um, Rube Goldberg issue or a um, uh, Linus Pauling. He seems to really still be on it. And so he's created an invention that uses geometry to capture and funnel light in order to produce more efficient solar energy. The apparatus uses reflective concentrator tubes that intensify solar reflections and could make existing solar panels more efficient or even replace them with a cheaper and simpler version. He says the tubes are quote-unquote dirt cheap, costing just pennies to create, and he's hoping they will save the world. Now, the work he did to earn his first Nobel Prize has already saved countless lives. In 2018, he shared the prize in physics for his role in inventing a tiny object levitating technology, uh, which is generally referred to as optical tweezers. And so that's a laser beam that can hold and stretch DNA, which has been helpful in countless fields. It's been used in biology, nanotechnology, spectroscopy, and all sorts of other um, fields. It has helped researchers develop a malaria blood test and better understand how cholesterol-lowering drugs soften our red red blood cells. Um, And so, yeah, he has been uh, very helpful already in really doing amazing work for uh, humanity. And it's really funny, actually, because when he got the call about the prize, he thought it was a prank. (laughs) Um, And he thought it was a prank because others had already won a prize for work that had built off of his. And so he didn't think that they would then award him the prize uh, later on. And so that original award was in 1997. And so that was actually awarded to former U.S. Secretary of Energy Stephen Chu. Uh, And so he and Ashkin had both worked at Bell Labs. Ashkin's work had involved gathering pond scum, placing them under a microscope and making them levitate using a laser beam. And so he actually uh, notes that light has energy, of course. And so we don't normally think about it, but because it has energy, it actually means it has a push. And so while the push of regular sunlight or lamplight is so tiny uh, that it's unnoticeable to a human, uh, but the intensity of laser light on a tiny object 
is enough to actually move them or manipulate them. So Ashkin had started researching this property of light in order to improve communication technologies for Bell. But once he realized what this could do, he switched to the biological applications. What's really cool is that he was actually supported in these efforts by Bell. Um, and so he began to explore the use of lasers on single-celled organisms and even DNA. You can tweeze them just like you would with tweezers, current Nokia Bell Labs president Marcus Weldon said. Uh, he could move nuclei around themselves, and they could do all these cool things. <laughs> when he retired in 1992, Bell Labs actually allowed him to take his equipment home, everything but the high-powered laser, which he said he couldn't take because he didn't have the voltage to run it at home. <laughs> And so, uh, you know, his only interest in the Nobel was actually to get people interested in his current work, which he hopes to publish soon in the journal Science. He's hoping that it will be able to be used the world around to create cheap and, and easy electricity. Um, of course, his wife <laughs> in this same interview said, well, you know, we've got some grandkids who are about to go to college. So uh, that Nobel Prize money won't go uh, to waste <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. Um, and so, um, yeah, apparently his wife is also quite amazing. And uh, she is 10 years his junior, but apparently they have been uh, together for a very long time. And she is actually, you know, very happy uh, that he is continuing to be able to do all these amazing things. Um, and so, yeah. Let's hope that there's actually some good uh, possibility of something on the horizon uh, when it comes to the uh, when it comes to talking about energy. <laughs> okay, let's take a break now, and then we are going to switch subjects completely, and we're going to return to the world of birds for a new uh, study on zebra finches. So uh, do hang on for a moment and we will play some PSAs and some show promos and then we'll come back and talk about birds. Yay! Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can, too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women, 
or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Sassy! Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, Sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, Sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andi Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Drum and bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10 Saturday nights. Fresh Sounds with your host, Ron Freshly, Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WXOJLP, bringing you the music of Bud Powell, Wardell Gray, Art Blakey, Duke Ellington, Abby Lincoln, Tad Dameron, Yousef Latif, Bix Beiderbeck, Cassandra Wilson, Tom Harrell, Jane Ira Bloom, and thousands more. Okay, we are back. And as promised, we are going to talk about zebra fish, zebra finches. I'm sorry. <laughs> zebra fish are also very important in science. So uh, unfortunately, it's an easy mistake uh, to make. And so zebra finches have long been used uh, as a good model for studying language development. Uh, it turns out, though, new research suggests that they're actually even better at it uh, than previously thought. Or, you know, it, they've become, we've noticed that they're doing something that makes them even better uh, models. And so this actually will add them to a rather elite pool of uh, animals that currently includes a very weird arrangement, uh, cowbirds, marmosets, and humans. <laughs> It's a very odd, uh, that's an odd dinner party. <laughs> uh, anyways, it turns out that teen males learn their songs uh, not only by listening and memorizing their father's songs, it turns out that new research suggests that they are actually better able to learn it when they see their mothers responding positively to their father's song. So it's not just about memorizing the song, it's also about the social cues from the mother to the father. And so that's what the sort of connection there is between these other um, 
animals is that it's about not only just the straight memorizing, listening and playing back, but also actually being attuned uh, to those social cues. Female zebra finches play an important role in male learning, in some ways even rivaling that of the male tutors, says Carl Berg, an avian ecologist at the University of Texas in Brownsville, uh, who was not involved in the study. Uh, and so it turns out that we already sort of knew that that females were having some kind of role because males raised by deaf females developed incorrect songs. Um, and so again, it was already established that there was something going on. They just didn't know what the actual mechanism was that was unclear. Uh, what the actual mechanism was, was unclear. Now, as I said before, cowbirds are in this uh, realm. However, it actually uh, was considered a fluke <laughs> until sort of they started doing this particular research into zebra finches. And so uh, it's been known that female brown-headed cowbirds make quick lateral wing strokes when they fancy a juvenile male's song. But again, this was considered a fluke. However, the similarities between the finches and cowbirds, which are both highly social and use their songs to attract mates rather than to claim territory, led researchers Samantha Caruso-Peck and Michael Goldstein of Cornell University to wonder if those two species shared the need of female social cues for the proper development of male song. Now, zebra finch males take around 55 days to learn their father's tune. The researchers chose nine pairs of brothers who had been raised by their parents for the first 35 days, which made them just old enough to start practicing their song. For an hour a day over the next 25 days, each brother sang by himself in a sound chamber that included a video monitor and a camera. Whenever they sang, a scientist would play a video of an unrelated f adult female erecting her feathers and moving her upper body from side to side, the zebra finch female's version of I Like Your Style. At the same time, the scientist played the video for the other brother, even if he wasn't singing. Once the birds had reached sexual maturity at 90 days, the scientist compared the songs of the birds in the experiment to their father's. Those who had gotten female feedback were far more accurate than their peers. Eight of the nine were able to sing melodies more acoustically similar to their father's song. We've shown that a young male zebra finch isn't learning his song via a special imitation box in his head, Goldstein said. He's learning it from his mom who loves his dad's song and is already excited and aroused by that song. This kind of social cue learning is also how babies learn speech, which is why, again, that makes the zebra finches even better models for looking at how speech develops. And so, yeah, that's very exciting. Um, they've actually been used a long time, and I think I've actually talked about uh, using zebra finches in uh, modeling language acquisition. I know that I went to 
one of the um, science cafes about it a couple of years ago. Um, someone was actually working on that and was talking about it. And it's just so fascinating um, how this develops. Uh, you know, the development of language to me is one of those things that is so interesting and amazing to just sit there for five minutes and think about like, how does language develop? How does some, how do people agree that, you know, this, uh, you know, series of utterances equals whatever it equals? Um, it's just really fascinating. Um, and it's definitely one of those sort of, you know, deep thoughts kind of <laughs> situations where, you know, you could just keep going around and around in your brain for hours thinking about it. But let's not do that now, because <laughs> we still have other things to talk about. And we're moving to another favorite topic of mine, which is archaeology. Uh, archaeologists recently uncovered an ancient, a set of ancient storage rooms in a 2,000-year-old winery at a site north of Cairo in Egypt's Nile Delta. What's really cool is that the rooms seem to have been constructed to be climate controlled for storing the wine. The thick walls were built from mud brick and in places incorporated limestone slabs of different sizes. The research, researchers believe that this would have helped to cool the chamber and regulate the temperature of the stored wine. Amongst the finds were coins, pots used in winemaking, and other pottery objects that were used for everyday life, like oil lamps. A set of kilns was found, and the coins actually spanned from the time of Ptolemy I Soter, who was a successor of Alexander the Great, and who actually ruled Egypt from 323 BCE to 285 BCE, all the way up to the Islamic conquest between 639 CE and 646 CE. Now, other parts of the winery had been previously unearthed, but archaeologists believe that there may be other nearby buildings that would have housed workers and supervisors during this Greco-Roman era uh, that would have spanned between the 4th and 7th centuries. Now, hints from painted shards that might have once been on a wall and fragments of mosaic are what suggest that there are residential buildings around. And so during this period, the region was actually known for its winemaking, according to Ayman Ashmoe, head of ancient Egyptian artifacts at the Ministry of Antiquities. And so, yeah, that's very cool. I like the fact that they had this sort of climate control uh, space that they were using. I think that's really neat. And so let us actually stay in Egypt for a moment. And so it's been announced that a major restoration of the interior of King Tut's tomb has finally been completed. Uh, and basically, so with millions of visitors kind of coming and going over many, many years, uh, the walls have taken a bit of a beating with fading, scuffing and scratches from moisture and dust. And so the Getty Conservation Institute, in cooperation with Egypt's Ministry of Antiquities, has been working for 10 years to restore the paintings and to do important infrastructure improvements. Now, of a special worry was that increased levels of carbon dioxide and humidity might have been stimulating microbial growth. 
And in fact, this can be a huge issue in and of itself. And in fact, there was another story this week of a corrosive black fungus that is destroying parts of a Portuguese cathedral. That story is interesting because the fungus actually turns out to be an entirely new family, genus, and species. But getting back to Tut's tomb, (laughs) Uh, other issues included the fact that the tomb was crowded, poorly lit, and devoid of signage. And so all of these issues have now been addressed with a multi-year plan for ongoing conservation and management. And the process is And the process gave researchers new information about the materials used to paint the walls, the microclimate within the chamber, and that microbial growth uh, that had formed brown spots on the walls. And so surprisingly, the paintings, while needing to be cleaned, actually were in decent condition. There was some flaking and paint loss, but not a whole lot. But those brown splotches, turns out that that fungus has been there for a long time. It's long since uh, become absolutely dormant, if not completely dead. And so it's not threatening the artwork further. Um, But it is actually, unfortunately, really kind of integrated into the paintings. So uh, you can't remove it without damaging it. As in all of our collective projects, collaborative projects, the the GCI has taken the long view with the intent to provide sustainable conservation and site management outcomes, Neville Agnew, Senior Principal Project Specialist at GCI, said in a statement. This involves systematic planning, documentation, scientific investigation, personnel training, and a sensitive approach to treatment. And so one of the most important upgrades is... Uh, both to restrict and to allow access. And so there are now barriers in front of the wall paintings. There's a new viewing platform, new walkways, new signs, and better lighting. And there's also an air filtration system, which will allow for controlling of humidity, carbon dioxide, and that dust, which of course are all issues. Now, fascinatingly, the tomb was able to be uh, was able to remain open throughout this entire ten year process for both tourists and researchers. Now, the funny thing about all of this, though, is that despite being extremely famous, Tut's tomb is actually kind of sad. Uh, it's much, much smaller, and there's much less ornamentation than should have been present in a pharaoh's tomb at this time. Uh, it's clear that it wasn't actually designed for him. The paintings were uh, clearly designed and executed very quickly. And in fact, that mold that was found to have already been present before the restoration started may actually have blossomed soon after the tomb was completed because there wasn't time to allow the walls to fully dry before the pharaoh's tomb needed to be sealed. There are even errors in the hieroglyphics, some of which were corrected rather inexpertly. Uh, In addition, the painters were clearly having trouble returning to the art style of the more ancient Egypt uh, after they had clearly been trained in the style of um, Akhenaten, who was King Tut's father. Um, And of course, uh, 
Akhenaten had basically tried to completely revolutionize uh, much of Egypt's spiritual and cultural symbolism. And so um, from the time of Akhenaten, all of the uh, artwork is extremely different. It's much more naturalistic, um, though the figures are have these, that's the famous sort of everyone points to those and says, oh, clearly, you know, these were hybrids between uh, ancient Egyptians and uh, aliens because they have elongated skulls and distended stomachs. And that was just because he was trying something different. He wanted to break away from the old and do something completely different. But of course, when King, by the time King Tut comes along, Akhenaten had already been basically scrubbed away, that Tut was supposed to return to the old ways. And, you know, unfortunately, people hadn't quite gotten all the way through kind of that whiplash of back and forth. Um, but of course, it's still a wonderful example of, uh, you know, the high level of skill and craftsmanship in ancient Egypt, because they were insanely, uh, incredibly uh, skillful. Now, of course, one of the things that we associate with Egypt is gold. And most of that gold came from sub-Saharan Africa. In fact, it might surprise some people to know that much of the gold and silver that ended up in Europe and fueled the Industrial Revolution was obtained through some trade, but mostly theft from the continents of Africa and Central and South America. And in fact, there is actually a very good argument to be made that the richest man who has ever lived wasn't one of our current crop of egomaniacal billionaires, but rather a West African king, Mansa Musa, who ruled the Empire of Mali between 1312 and at least 1332. Um, we're not quite sure when he died. And so under his rule, the Mali Empire stretched from the Atlantic coast to the famed city of Timbuktu and into parts of the Lower Sahara. We know of his great wealth due in part to his religious devotion. A devout Muslim, he began a trip to Mecca for the Hajj pilgrimage in 1324. Now, of course, since he was the ruler of a huge kingdom, uh, a huge empire, I should say, he didn't travel alone. He traveled with a vast caravan of retainers and servants and camels burdened with vast quantities of gold and other precious items. Just how vast was his wealth? Imagine as much gold as you think a human being could possess and double it. That's what all the accounts are trying to communicate, answers Rudolf Ware, an associate history professor at the University of Michigan. This is the richest guy anyone has ever seen. And so when traveling through Egypt, Musa actually left behind so much gold in gifts and from trade that it actually devalued gold within the country overall. It took 12 years for the value of gold to recover in the country. And, you know, he didn't just walk to Mecca. He, you know, did some business while he was he heading to Mecca. And so he obtained new lands uh, on his trip there, including the territory of Gao uh, from the Songhai Kingdom, which extended his territory along the Southern Sahara uh, and was bounded by the uh, Niger River. 
And so ultimately, the kingdom of Mali stretched through Mali, Senegal, Gambia, Guinea, Niger, Nigeria, Chad, and Mauritania. Uh, he built the Jingubera uh, Mosque in Gawa after completing his Hajj. And that mosque, uh, made of mud brick and stone, still stands. It's very famous, uh, and it's been active for more than 500 years. He also uh, dedicated schools, universities, libraries, and mosques throughout the trading center of Timbuktu. Uh, and so by the late 14th century, he had uh, become known in the uh, knowledge base of Europe. And so the Catalan Atlas, which was created in 1375 by the Spanish cartographer Abraham Cresc, uh, and which was an important resource for medieval European navigators, shows Musa sitting on a throne with a gold scepter and crown holding a gold nugget. Now, of course, this is a little bit more history than science, uh, but I think it's important to think about uh, the sort of larger ramifications of European colonialism pretty much all the time, because it's pretty much, uh, it, it just infuses everything. And so, you know, the idea that the richest person who ever lived was an African king, um, I think that would surprise a lot of people in America. Um, and also, it kind of flows into our next story, which is that new research suggests that the sheer volume of genocide created by the misnamed, quote, age of discovery uh, was enough to actually have an effect on the climate. Geologists and environmental scientists from Stanford University believe that the cold period in Europe between 1500 and 1750, generally referred to as the Little Ice Age, was actually caused by the population of the Americas being rapidly purged via the introduction of new diseases. This would in turn have led to a rapid reforestation of the Americas as land that had been cultivated for agriculture returned to their previous wild states. Now, of course, trees are natural carbon sinks, so they would have pulled carbon dioxide from the air and stored it, creating an atmosphere that was less able to hold heat. So this is basically a kind of reversal of the current human-caused global warming, where trees are being decimated at an alarming rate, returning the carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, and thus making the atmosphere much better at retaining heat, uh, and therefore causing uh, all sorts of global warming and terrible atmospheric awfulness, including the fact that the polar vortex keeps breaking up and we end up with negative temperatures. <sighs> but let's let's get back to this. Uh, Richard Nelve, a visiting scholar, led the team, which looked at charcoal remnants in soil and lake sediments that showed signs of indigenous Americans having burned forests in order to create farmland. So it turns out that around the 500-year mark, all traces of this charcoal basically stop. And this is, of course, when Europeans were beginning to arrive with their pestilences. 
And so by estimating that for a population of 40 to 80 billion, or sorry, million indigenous people, the amount of deforested land would have probably been around the size of California. To suddenly have those trees begin to return as, again, up to 90% of the native inhabitants of the Americas were wiped out, this would have taken 2 to 17 billion tons of carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere. Now, core samples from Antarctica actually do show that a drop in carbon dioxide of 6 to 10 parts per million uh, were, was present between 1535 and the early 1600s. Now, of course, this isn't proof positive. There may have been other elements such as volcanic eruptions, solar flares, or uh, changing ocean currents. If a colder ocean current came uh, was present, then that changes the uh, jet stream. But it's a pretty substantial finding that certainly suggests that, as we all know, humans can have drastic effects on the climate as a whole. Okay, let's finish up tonight with something very different uh, from that. Uh, let's talk about some science skepticism, some good old-fashioned skepticism. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, there has apparently been some sort of uh, you know, story that's that's going around that this Israeli biotech company uh, is claiming that they'll be able to quote unquote cure cancer within a year. Now, this statement is extremely dubious, uh, without even having to consult the opinions of scientists or doctors, I immediately think, what do you mean by cancer? Cancer isn't one thing. It's a host of different mechanisms set off by a host of different origins, including genetics, environment, and the ingestion of carcinogens, which is, you know, cancer-causing agents. Also, the only thing that we have right now is a is basically a press release. Uh, it's an article in the Jerusalem Post in which the Accelerated Evolution Biotechnologies Company uh, states that they've created a treatment called Mutato or multi-target toxin, which consists of a group of different kinds of peptides that overwhelm a cancer cell in order to allow it to be targeted by a toxin. Well, that sounds all well and good and interesting, uh, but again, there is nothing that we have seen yet in the way of actual trials. They actually say that they've done one mouse study, uh, but promise that it is repeatable and, you know, it, it, it totally works and that they're totally hoping to start clinical trials soon. Yikes. As I'm constantly saying, most trials are not a basis to make any claim on. And of course, here is a lovely quote. As experience has taught us so many times, the gap from a successful mouse experiment to an effective beneficial application of exciting laboratory concepts to helping cancer patients at the bedside is in fact a long and treacherous journey filled with unforeseen and unanticipated obstacles, wrote Dr. Len Lich Lichtenfield, the chief medical officer of the American Cancer Society, in a blog post responding to this uh, Jerusalem Post story. And so multiple doctors have also chimed in to say that while it would be wonderful, uh, they are extremely dubious. Um, and so uh, this is, I think, really kind of 
irresponsible hype uh, that nobody should be paying any real attention to. Um, while we've gotten way better at treating cancer, um, I just don't. I just don't believe that this is some sort of miracle cure. All right. That is all the time we have for tonight. So uh, please do stay tuned for Civil Politics uh, coming up next. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.